1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Hey everyone, this is Justin. Thanks for tuning in this week to another episode of Rev Covery. I'm just going to be doing the intro this week and then I'm going to sit back and not say anything because this week we have a interview between Sarah Heath and Sarah Lane Ritchie. It's going to be the Sarah Squared show this week and it's a wonderful conversation. Uh, Sarah Lane Ritchie is a theologian Uh, She has studied at Princeton and Edinburgh and several other places. We were able to meet with her at the Theology Beer Camp that we went to about a month ago. And Sarah had an opportunity to interview her uh, one-on-one. And it's a fantastic conversation. It ranges in all the places that we go on this show. But I think particularly understanding this idea of divine hiddenness and what happens when God doesn't show up for me in the way that I expect them to. I think that is a that is a primal question and that is a question that I think so many folks in our community are asking as we examine our lives and what it meant to be a minister or a super volunteer or even just someone who just gave everything to the church but maybe didn't get the rewards or get the experiences that we expected. And it's it's, it's a great conversation. Very excited about it. Just before um, we go, it's just some, a little bit of business. We will be putting out episodes throughout the end of throughout the year and taking a break just that last week of Christmas and maybe a couple weeks in January, as is our rhythm. We put out about 20 episodes or so, and then we take a little break. And so we're about, we're getting close to that point. If you would like to talk about this episode and talk about other episodes or just talk about this process of recovering from your calling, you can join us on our Discord. You can access that via patreon.com slash revcovery. That's where you get all the information about that and links and stuff to join for a very, very low rate. And so that's really all I have to say. Enjoy this wonderful conversation between Sarah Heath and Sarah Lane Ritchie. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to present to you two Sarahs that have biology degrees. Guys, I am so excited. My name is Sarah Heath, and I am absolutely honored to be here uh, as a friend of Trip Fuller, for sure. Also, as a podcast host, if you were here earlier, you saw Kevin Garcia, who is one of the podcasts I'm a part of called Your Favorite Ants. Sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. Why? Because we both have ADHD. The other (laughs) one... uh, is one called Rev Covery for people who are transitioning how they've done ministry before or maybe they're leaving ministry. So today we're going to kind of act from within the framework, Sarah, if you're okay with this, uh, uh, that we're a Rev Covery episode because Fabulous. Kind of this is how we're recording it. And so if you were not here this morning, you know, listeners, for an example, also buy a ticket next year, you didn't get to hear the incredible talk by Dr. Sarah Lane Ritchie, who is someone who really helps us understand how science and religion can merge together, are separate and yet are equal, and yeah, just kidding, how they also just bleed together. And for a lot of folks who are part of our audience, they're folks who have had this, what I call a faith shift. They felt like they had to leave things behind before. And so what I love is this idea that you have of just sort of like understanding that it's all together. And so Sarah, if you don't mind, would you share a little bit, just a tiny bit for those who didn't get to hear you this morning, sort of what was your thesis about? I'm just kidding. Uh, what, <laughs> in three minutes, now what, what does your work kind of orbit around? Like if you're talking about your passion, what do you believe, like what is your work around and about? Sure. So basically I have found a way to get paid studying the things that keep me up at night, which is what most academics, if they are honest, will tell you is what they're doing. Straight up. Yes. So my PhD is in science and religion, and I have a background in the sciences as well, which means that pretty much everything I have done is, exists at the intersection of philosophy, theology, 
and the sciences, mostly these days, the psychological sciences and the social sciences. Uh, the questions that keep me up at night are the questions surrounding why we believe what we believe, why we don't believe the things that we don't believe, why we have the spiritual yearnings and the hunger that we have, and what we can do to address those. Where are the spaces in our lives that we have agency and freedom to cultivate experiences with God that are meaningful and transformative? And how do we know what the heck is actually true? How do we know we're not fooling ourselves? And so I do stuff in interdisciplinary spaces all the time. But again, everything I do is completely autobiographical. Yes. So <laughs> Tripp asked me today if I could interview Sarah. And it was, so I was like, I've been attentive to every talk. But when I know that I'm going to be engaging with someone on a different level, I was like, I'm going to listen with like a notebook. I'm serious about this. And I sat and I listened. And then when you were talking about how you were studying to be a pre-med, pre-med yeah. I was pre-med. You got talked out of it. I got yeah. talked out of it. I got talked into theology. Uh, but I remember like taking, I was, I was sharing with Sarah earlier, I took my recommendation. I went to Duke for um, seminary, which don't listen to Aaron. It's a great school. It is. Um, I took my recommendation letter into the dean of science. Mm-hmm. And I was like, can you sign this? Can you recommend me for Duke? And he put it down on his desk and said, I always knew you'd go to medical school. <laughs> I am so proud of you. Mm-hmm. And I said, actually, I'm going to get my, my graduate degree in theology. And he went, why? <laughs> and it was like I had harmed him personally. And then he said, but you're a reverend. How are you going to be a reverend? And I thought, I like him. Uh, also, please sign this, sir. There is an interesting thing where we feel as if when we're talking to, we, also, we often talk about the different languages we use. Yeah. So when you are in science spaces, mm-hmm. do you feel like you have to sort of cover up this theology side or have you actually found? Depends on who I'm talking to. I have this, I was just talking to a friend about this. I have this like terrible habit of like avoiding saying what I actually do because everyone has an opinion about Same. theology. Same. Everyone thinks that they know what's up with science and religion. So like, a hairdresser, a taxi driver. They ask me what I do, and I'm like, Tinder dates. I'm in philosophy-ish. <laughs> kind of try and shut that conversation down. No, but it's like, because I'm in, in an interdisciplinary space, there is a lot of translation that has to happen. Um, I think actually, though, I've been impressed, especially in recent years, with how open to interdisciplinary conversations people are. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I engage with a lot of brilliant, fabulous, wonderful psychologists. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. I'm also theologians. <laughs> and people are genuinely curious. I think we are. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot that's not going well in our world. But there's also a lot that's going right. And I do like that we are in a space where there's like a real acceptance and encouragement of like the fertile... Uh, discussion spaces that can be opened up when people are willing to translate like the nitty-gritty details of their particular research projects to people who are also brilliant and just doing something in a different field. Um, I mean, that's fun. And so I, I guess I try, to, I try to demonstrate that I am connected to as up-to-date research as I can with, yep. in the field of the person I'm talking to, um, signal my areas of ignorance, own my, own my limitations, and show them like how exciting the discussion spaces can be at the intersection of what their passion project is and and my own thing. So I mean, I feel like I'm a therapist actually right. in, in, in interdisciplinary conversations, drawing especially like the introverted kind of awkward academics who Most. don't know how to talk to people. Most. This, by the way, is why we made the right choice. Yeah. Yeah. So if we'd gone to med school, we wouldn't get to have these sorts of conversations. And I like to think that our skills would be wasted in, yeah. the, in, that, in that field. Um, Except for you guys who are doctors out there, you're great. <laughs> exactly. We We're like just trying to make ourselves feel better about Patreon, our terrible life choices. You got the money. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I do feel like I am trying to facilitate conversations for most of my, like, my, most of my life. Yeah. I think it's funny how I have found myself, and I don't know how many of you out there are the same, but I found myself like apologizing before I needed to, mm-hmm. to folks. So because we often deal with folks who have had religious trauma or have had, and I, I cannot wait to talk to you about the hidden God, which I'm supposed to do this apparently, uh, mm-hmm. the hidden God. I think there is this sense that oftentimes when I go to explain what my work has been, I'll be like... <laughs> Like already being like, I know there's like a lot of religious trauma and the person I'm spoke, like speaking to has never been to a church. Mm-hmm. They're not an ex-evangelical. 
They have no idea what I'm talking about. I was like, I just want, I'm not that kind of Christian. And they're like, mm -hmm. I'm not any kind of Christian. <laughs> so I don't understand why you're like giving all these disclaimers. But when you step into a space and you can say, you're really into this thing, it's so generative. Mm -hmm. The conversation is so different when you can go, here are our commonalities. Check out this weird like way I flip it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the thing you actually want to talk about, which is that late at night, you're not sure if there's a God. Mm -hmm. And the gut person's like, what? And so I'm so grateful for that conversation. And I'm so grateful for your honesty around this idea that what we are often doing is creating what we most needed. Part of my story as well is that my mom is a four-time cancer survivor, but I walked through that idea of going to, so I moved from Canada to Mississippi, like you do in high wow. school. So very, I know it's going to be shocking for those of you in this room, but very different religious spaces, just super different. And so I really tried to be a good American, like that was my, like, I could be like, evangelicalism, deep v-necks, I'm into it. Like I was like trying really hard just to fit in. And I think part of that was the prosperity gospel. When you live in a, in a state that is one of the poorest states, like this idea that if God is for you, you're going to be okay, right? Because you see things like that. So when you're dealing with a, a parent who is sick and you're praying for God to change it, and it's not going the way you want it, and these are formational years for me, it's the same years. Definitely. I am so captivated by the, this idea of you not feeling like you need to get to the end. And then I love when you're like, everyone's on the edge of their seat. There wasn't, you couldn't waiting hear. for the redemptive yeah, waiting, yeah. waiting for you to be like, and then God, God showed up, showed up. And you're like silence. Not and then. everyone in the room is like, it's what I thought it would be. <laughs> no, <laughs> like what do I do? How, how so do you, sorry, sorry guys. <laughs> How do you deal with, because what you're doing as an academic yeah. is you're dealing with people in this very formational time, mm -hmm. the 18 to 22. How do you balance understanding that you're creating what you most needed, wanting to be authentic, and not wanting to like ruin their world? Like how do you yeah. kind of come together with, I both don't want to give you a false story. Can you share a little bit about how you do that within this sort of space? Yeah, sure. It's really hard. I have people write to me out of the blue sometimes and they'll be like, I'm in the middle of a faith crisis. Right. I heard you at this one thing for like 15 minutes and like you seem like you've come out the other side. It seems like you figured it all out. And like, you're like, tell shit. Me. I know, I know. Like, <laughs> and so, and they'll say something like, I feel like I'm just like barely hanging on, like help me hang on to my faith. And part of me is like, I'm not your girl. But there's another part. <laughs> But there's another part of me that's like, you can survive this. Like, you can be honest about your story, and you are not the first person. Like, there are other people who are experiencing exactly what you have experienced and have found ways to have spiritually meaningful and rich and rewarding, flourishing lives. Like, this is not the end of the story for you, no matter what your, end, your religious convictions end up being. So, like, I always want to say, like, there's hope for you, even if, like, that wherever you end up is not what you want it to look like right now. I think the second thing is there is some like harm mitigation that you can do. So like, for example, with your mother, like with mothers with cancer, this is a great example. And when I was 16 and my mom had stage four colon cancer and she was dying in her bed, we had a very well-meaning pastor couple from our local charismatic church. These are people who knew me, who prayed for me to be born before I was born. They were trusted family friends, and they had recently gotten caught up in a kind of neo-charismatic, like third wave charismatic movement where the point of everything that they were doing was to bring people to a, a place of being able to have nothing but rock-solid faith that God would heal the person that was being prayed for. And if the person was not healed, it was because they were living in sin or had not confessed a hidden trauma or a wound or like oh, they were harboring unforgiveness. So I remember sitting on the foot of my mother's bed while these people are praying in tongues over my mom. And I remember praying to myself, you know, silently praying like, God, please don't let my mom die because I don't believe in you. Please don't let my mom die because yep. I don't believe in you. A teenager. Yeah, I was 16. And like, I just remember that panic of feeling like my mom, I was going to lose my mom. I'm responsible. And it's my fault. I didn't pray right. And it's my yeah. fault. If I had a little more faith, she would be okay. 
Um, and that is the sort of thing that sticks with you. It can cause like lifelong damage. And so anything I can do like with harm mitigation when people yes. are at crucial moments of their lives, I want to do that. I might not be able to give them a satisfying religious encounter with God that they want, but I can at least kind of give them some resources to say, that's bad theology. There are some people who would not frame this experience in the way that you've been told you have to frame it. There are other options for you. So that's the second thing. And I think there was like a third and fourth thing, but I forgot them. So oh, I'll stop there. You're doing great. Welcome to the Sarah Show, guys. <laughs> <laughs> There's two of us. Like, you I haven't came. been diagnosed with ADHD, you but... <laughs> I think there is, right around that time, so uh, in some ways my mom is what many people would consider a walking military show. So she had colon cancer and then breast cancer twice, skin cancer, and then had a massive brain bleed, and we almost lost her in that. And a couple years before that, my best friend, one of my best friend's moms had died from a brain aneurysm. So we're young, guys. We're like in our early 20s. And dealing with being in a sort of more charismatic space, the guilt that you feel when you think, well, maybe I did the prayers right, where my hands in the right way. Right. And I remember kind of losing that friend for a little bit, but I was trying, because I'm a three with a two wing, so I will love you the best. <laughs> uh, and so I tried so hard to like be there for her. And I'll remember, it took her several years. She went away. She like did the Peace Corps, came back. And she was like, I'm sorry that I couldn't be around you, but I was so angry at you and God. Because your mom lived and my mom died. And I don't know how not to hate you for that. And I thought, oh, there's the start of a real friendship. And I didn't have the right answers. I'd been in seminary and I was like, I don't, I don't have anything for this. But I know that what didn't help me during that time were all the people who were like, your mom's great. She's going to live. Because my like, best friend's mom didn't. So that was like a terrible thing. But it was the people that just sat with me and said, I don't have an answer for this. But I will buy you pimento cheese sandwiches and sit with you. When you are talking about this idea of a hidden God, I looked around the room and saw people's shoulders go down. Because I think there are many people in this room, I'm not looking at you right now, who have had that sense that God is for everyone else. God has shown up but God has not shown up for me. Mm -hmm. When you talk about this idea of a hidden God, how does that work into this idea of, I love this idea you're talking about practices. So almost like setting up the right conditions, setting Mm -hmm. the table and then being like, you're going to show up. What do you think those things are if you keep doing that and God still remains hidden? Right, so this is sort of my lifelong project. This is the question. It's not something I have an easy answer for. What? I think, I know, I'm okay. so sorry. The, I mean, would you be disappointed, though, if I did have an easy answer? Um, Here are the three steps, but to get the course, you're going to have to sign, sign up, up, guys. So there's one link. The price is going to go up right after this. So yeah. if you're in this room, the discount code is, yeah. I'm just kidding. Don't worry, I would never do that to you. We're not doing that. What I will say is that something that can be an immediate encouragement to everybody is that any spiritual crisis you are having, somebody else who's very smart throughout history has also thought that thing and had that experience and wrestled with it immensely. So one of the greatest gifts that philosophy and theology has given me, other than six figures and student debt, is <laughs> Six the... figures in student debt, not six figures and student debt. I need you guys to hear that. That's right. That's right. I have been so delighted to continually experience that the things that I thought were my private, uh, my private spiritual dramas, the things that I thought were unique to me, the things that I thought made me wrong, like not a real human, like like set apart from the rest of humanity, like not a fully like conscious agent or something, that the, my experiences were common to a lot of people. And a lot of people who went on to have incredible impact in the world, Mother Teresa, who knows that Mother Teresa was probably something very similar to an atheist when it term, comes to her. They like, had to yeah. hide her diary. Yes. They're some of the most powerful people that have ever existed on this planet. Create are that Pinterest struggle. God's not real, Mother Teresa. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, exactly. And so when I like stumbled across the problem of divine hiddenness, which is a philosophical framing of like my experience, basically, it was just like this thrill of exhilaration that like other people had been here too. There's something just so powerful about existing in community through your pain. Because the false narrative is, as we look at things like you mentioned Hillsong United, all yeah. this sort of stuff, you see this pack of people and you think, oh, they look like they belong. Mm-hmm. Why don't I belong? That's right. So for someone to say, 
Yep. Maybe where you belong is on that right. margin of that doesn't work for me. Yeah, that's right. All right, so the first thing is just you're okay. I mean, like other people who are really freaking brilliant and have changed the landscape of philosophy and theology and like the world are people who have struggled immensely, many times have just truly thought to themselves or said to others, there's probably nothing worth calling God out there. Or if there is a God, it's not a God worth calling God. Um, so that, that was the first thing is that I just, I found such kindred spiritness and with the people that I was reading and the, the hit, hiddenness literature. Now the question that you're asking though is the hard one, right? So what if you like take seriously the sciences? What if you take seriously our embodiment and you start a meditation practice and you find yourself a great progressive welcoming spiritual community and you are engaging in artistic and nature-based practices and you have a music kind of scene that is really working for you and you're doing yoga and you're doing like you're just you're filling your life with all you're the right vegan. stuff vegan i don't know <laughs> i know <laughs> like you're filling your life with all the right stuff and you just still feel like there's this like aching hole in the center of your gut you're not alone <laughs> this is a very normal thing i think that for me is where theology does come in so what I'm not a fan of is people telling you, oh, you don't, you don't think that you're experiencing God, but don't worry, you do. This is the gaslighting approach. To say, no, don't worry, you are. When you experienced <laughs> your parents loving you or the birth of your daughter, you were experiencing God. So don't worry that you haven't had the religious experience because you are experiencing everything you need to experience. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that this world is all that there is and there's nothing transcendent or loving beyond. You know, so I'm like, no, 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 there really is something missing here. So their biggest fear for them is that what you're saying might be true. And so what do we do when we, we're nervous that we might not be right? That seems very wrong. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So there is a way. So sorry. So, so, so what I'm not a fan of is people like gaslighting you and saying you shouldn't yeah. feel what you're feeling. Like, but you don't know. worry. Here's some thoughts you can feel. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're fine. Like, so acknowledge that your experience is what it is. And then there are some things that have really helped people in the past, right? So there are like the practices, the peak experiences, the rhythms, the disciplines. There's a whole history and literature about this. So there's that. Pursue that. It's good. And in that is like getting hooked up into really deep, robust community. Do that. And then the other part, though, is working with the theological ideas. So, I mean, if your version, if the version of God that you're trying to connect to is just like not manifesting as real to you, sometimes it is appropriate to kind of question, like, what does this mean for me? So I, I, I was joking earlier today, but not joking when I said that one of my first experiences of what I thought, well, one of my first kind of encounters, what I felt like I meant to experience God was like asking God to change a word in a book. Anyone else thought it was going to change? I know. I, that, that would have been a much better ending. Um, because of Diana Butler Bass, because she was like, and then it turned out my relative had been there before <laughs> and built the church. And I'm like, why am I not mystical? I know. When she was telling that story, I'm like, God, I suck. Right? I thought so, too. I was like, I should not talk here anymore. <laughs> God is definitely, Diana yeah, Butler Bass is definitely God's favorite. Absolutely. <laughs> definitely. That's DBB. I was texting a friend during this being like, my God, Jesus. Anyway. I started going to all the old buildings around here just I know. like, have an experience. <laughs> like hooking in your like 23andMe data being like, there's got to be a genealogy connection somewhere. Turns uh, out. Right, right. Okay. All right. So theology. Theology. Right. So sometimes our, God, sometimes our God concepts are bad ones. Sometimes the version of God that we are hoping to make real to us through our practices is not the God that we want to be making real. Tom Ward, I think Tom Ward is a perfect example of someone, a theologian who has done all the hard work trying to deconstruct a version of God that is probably not real, that is not helpful, that is not true to scripture or theology or lived experience, and kind of dismantling what we think it means for God to be God. Like, if we don't have a God that intervenes and heals our mothers of cancer, does that mean that there is no God we're talking about? Tom would say, no, I think he's right. And so sometimes, like, working with what we think it means for God to be, for God to be, yeah, maybe for God to be personal or not less than personal, as Bill Quinton would say, God, for, for God to be a loving divine lore, as the process people would divine say. Divine lore. That's Divine lore. Sexy. I know, right? Sex does sound sexy. That's not sexy. Um, I'm into it. Process party. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes the theology needs to change. But I don't like starting with that. Because it does tend to lead to gaslighting. So right. if like, you come to people with your raw experience of being abandoned, forsaken, isolated, 
the last thing you want is for people to tell you, your theology just sucks. Why would you think God would show up in that way? What you need is to be heard and to be given a path and to be connected to a community of people who love you. And then you can start playing with the edges of your theology and coming to something that is something they're able to affirm. So what I said this morning is true. When people ask me like whether or not I believe in God, I really do now come back to this place of being like, okay, I don't know what the word God means. I don't know what the word exist means. I don't want to like, I know theologically I can't confine God to like a person in the way that we usually think of persons. But I do know that I have had experiences that involve love and joy and transcendence and meaning and purpose excitement and curiosity, sorrow and pain, and whatever the foundations of reality are, they have to be able to accommodate that, those experiences. If the structure, the basic structure of reality cannot accommodate all of our human experiences, then we haven't got the full metaphysical picture yet. So if you want to call that God, I'm cool with that. I believe in God. But that's not the God that a lot of people are looking for or want to say is God. And that's the kind of, the, that's the tension. That's the kind right. of like the, the, the space we're always trying to na- navigate. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth. And this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Well, I think it's, uh, as someone who uh, has worked as a public speaker my entire career, I, lo- I love this idea of what do we say and how do we say it. I-, I noticed the intentionality that you said all the ways you'd experienced God first and then waited to be like, if there is a God, like, so it's okay. Because what you did is allowed people to have that human experience of, I've had all those experiences. Is that God? Because again, I think if you're using the bingo, if you're here at this theology beer camp, I'm going to say, when we're making space, uh, when we're making spaces uh, for folks, I think the very first question people ask when they come into any space, whether they walked in that door a minute ago, is do I belong in this space? Whether you're walking into an academic space, Sarah and I can talk about as women coming mm-hmm. into academic spaces, the, the language that we use, the way we stand, the way we dress, we are always asking the question, do I belong in this space? I think that's true of every single place we go into. It was true when you walked in this store. So when you are saying to them, whether you have had that profound experience or maybe you haven't, we can be in this space together because we're not done. The stories not done. I, the open-endedness, we always were told, like, that's the scary space. Did you guys, did you guys feel like you, like, we joke around about feeling like shits because Diana Butler Bass is closer to God, obviously. I mean, obviously. But that sense of, like, and yet I feel like I can still be here. Mm-hmm. There's something about the way that you talk about both theology and biology that makes space for all of it that isn't, because many people go... <laughs> fundamentalist from like I am fundamentalist and you have to believe all these things and God's had to show up this way like I remember my first day of seminary this guy they were talking about like oh yeah when people speak in tongues and I was from Canada that's not a thing so I like <laughs> like except for like in Canada yet not really and if it is it was like oh that's very exciting isn't it uh well good for you <laughs> oh that sounds that's interesting don't we say interesting when we really don't know what to do my oh that's interesting do you like living in mississippi it's different <laughs> that's what i said but we i remember saying like oh speaking in tongues <laughs> oh and this guy looks at me and goes you haven't and i was like i'm not really great at french <laughs> are you asking to make out with me i don't know what to- <laughs> But I think we immediately know both when there is space for us and when there isn't space for us. And, and it's interesting because I think sometimes as theologians or people who ask these questions that with, are within the space of religion, we're afraid to step into the other spaces and vice versa. So my friends who are super like scientists, the way I said that is like as if they had a cape. Um, but my <laughs> friends who, um, who I knew from undergrad who studied science and and really just had no room 
for uh, the spectacular or the mystical or the divine. What I realized sometimes is that they didn't feel like they belonged because they were having human experiences that had all those questionings. When you're playing around with these thoughts or ideas, how do you feel like you're able to make space? Is it that intentionality of like mm -hmm. sharing, yeah, I've had all these yeah. divine moments that I don't know what to do with, or is yeah. it something else? Which you don't have to call them a divine moment. I didn't mean to gaslight you and tell you what you were feeling. Keep it. <laughs> nice. I have like, a friend. Do you share that with your students? Oh, I, I have do. A... No, I do. I do. Okay. I do. And, like, I'll, and I'll tell you why. So I have a friend who is this brilliant Oxford astrophysicist, and she's like one of the most, she's like one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And she's an atheist. And she thinks I'm kind of, she thinks I've, I'm like totally nuts for wanting to have, <laughs> she's like, for even desiring a spiritual connection. She thinks I've just like kind of checked my intellectual, intellectual street cred at the door. And like, I never want to be that person. But one thing that this friend has done for me is she's, she's talked to me a lot about our superpowers and her kind of thesis in the world is that everybody has a superpower. Your job is to figure out what your superpower is. I know this sounds totally hokey and gimmicky, but just roll with it for a sec. Just imagine so, Rick Warren's purpose-driven life. Exactly. Everyone has one. I saw that. I won't, I, you know what? I'm, I won't even do Enneagram, four-wing three. But like, I'm like, like, like there Obviously. is. Obviously. <laughs> just it, it was. It, well, there, it, there could be something there. But so my friend Sarah has talked to me a lot about Another this idea. Sarah. This I know. Sense. I know. I know. Find your superpower. Like, what is your superpower? What is the thing that you can do that will be a gift to other people that other people struggle to do? For me, that thing has never felt like a gift. It's just felt more like a compulsion. And that has always been, I have to say what is true for me, like what is actually happening for me. Like I cannot freaking lie. And I, and more than that, like I have never felt, I never feel more alive than when I'm able to be transparent and vulnerable and honest and kind of just like lay my heart out there. And, but here's the thing, this is not for everybody. It doesn't cost me anything. Other people, it costs them a lot. And I yeah. have learned this. I have learned this because I have a lot of friends who are not like me. And I do not go around encouraging them to start being like super vulnerable at the most painful experience that they've ever had with their colleagues and like write about it in academic journals. I don't recommend that to them because it would cost them a lot. That might be an appropriate risk at some point. But for me, it doesn't cost me anything because I value so much the liberation that I get from being yeah. able to say things that are true. And also because I have had people that I have been so drawn to, I, who I have heard say that things I could never have imagined they would say in front of a group of people. And it was so liberating and powerful and transformative for me to hear them say things that were hard and vulnerable and true. And because I had like the right people in my life when I was younger, it just became very quickly something that I just knew that I, I didn't have a choice. I was just like, well, this is just going to be me, I guess. I have also found a way to marry that with academia. So what I, one thing, one trick here is to realize that like any experience that you're having, no matter how vulnerable or like raw it is, there have been people who have psychologically analyzed the shit out of that. Like there will be a body of literature describing your experience, no matter what that experience is. And that can be very affirming because you can just connect your experience to the research on that experience. And so you can kind of like, offload some of like the psychological weight that you feel like you have to care when you're being super vulnerable you can say or I can say like yeah this is my experience of belief or the lack of belief but guess what there's a whole body of literature and philosophy of religion about this also CSR also psychology of religion and it becomes an interesting discussion point and gives people a way in yeah so those are my two things I'm just laughing because I'm thinking about when I moved from Canada to Mississippi and tried really hard to be American, um, I started dating uh, the fo football captain, obviously. And oh, my God. Mic drop. He also, he also was the president of the youth group, and I was the vice president. You're welcome. You had a vice president of your youth group? I think they made the position for me. I don't know. I'm a three. They're like, we should do something with her. But it was so funny because I would call home to my friends in Canada, and I would talk to them. These are very intelligent people. And I would talk to them, and I'd be like, so... I am just really excited because I'm dating this guy and he really loves the Lord. And my friend goes, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and then I realized I was talking to her and she was like, Sarah believes in Santa Claus. <laughs> She's like, I was like, he just really loves the Lord. And I just feel like, and I had all this whole thing. And I was like, we are going to change the world together because there is this idea that you have to, like, impact people, mm -hmm. right? So there is this compulsion to, like, 
everything has to have meaning. And I, I agree with you. I think that's also true in academia, right? Like everything's mm -hmm. being studied. Everything has to have meaning. And sometimes you're in those couple of years mm -hmm. when you didn't hear from God and you were always told that if you were a real believer, you would hear from God. Mm -hmm. And it feels like you're making space for people to not be processed. Of course. Uh, not right. process is fine. Everyone in the room, like they're just like tightened <gasps> up. Process theology is fine. Not that process. Uh, um, but to not have worked through it and to maybe be in the muck of it and That's not right. to search for meaning. I think for a lot of our audience on Revcovery, they're former pastors who are like every week you had to give a sermon, whether you wanted to or not. And mm -hmm. sometimes you're like, it's Tuesday. I don't even believe in God. Mm -hmm. And on Sunday, I got to pitch it to you. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is this sense of like, I need to make meaning out of my, oh my gosh, my mail was late, which clearly meant that like, you just yeah. try to make meaning out of all of these things, which I think is a human experience. That's right. It is. And this is what Myron was talking about this morning, that we are purpose-seeking creatures, we need to, we have just like a very natural inclination to want to, to, to discern purpose in things that happen around us. There's, so there's, a, there's like an understandable psychological mechanism at work here. Um, but yeah, I mean, the greatest gifts that people have given to me are the gifts that have involved creating a lot of space for me to be a fucking mess, for me <laughs> to just feel like there was no hope, that there was no light at the end of right. whatever tunnel. Am I even in a tunnel or am I in the outer space? I don't know. I love giving that to people. I mean, I think if you've ever really suffered and like felt like spiritually alone and like maybe been a human, if you've ever yeah, tried exactly. that. But if you've ever really felt like what it, I mean, if you've ever like really, really suffered in that way. Not me. Like, <laughs> it's not true. When you can give that, when you can give that gift of like connection and acceptance to someone else and like be like, no, I see you. I see you. I hear you. Like, I got you. I have had friends do that for me, and it's like the most powerful thing you can do for someone is just like see them, hear them, love them. And it's not, not rocket science. This is not hard. This is, I mean, maybe it's hard, but it's not rocket science. It's not making meaning out of it. No, no. Right? Not like being like, <laughs> like your friends were like, I know you felt like God wasn't there, but here are the seven places that God was. Because that's really about your insecurity, right? Like, that's right. Uh, I need there to have been a God in this. I would love, if our audience is open to it, guys, we have room for a couple of questions. Sarah, are you open to that? Of course. Also, I noticed that Sarah has two phones. I asked her if they were drug phones, but they, like if she was a drug dealer. I mean, but they both have pop sockets, which I feel like is not a drug Trip's dealer. That's Trip's fault. Trip was like, Sarah, get yourself some pop sockets. You'll never go back. <laughs> I just feel like that's like not what the like... I know street gang drug dealers are doing. I like, don't. No less than five. No fewer than five people have told me today that I don't look like the typical druggie. I'm like, thanks. Oh, <laughs> for those of you listening to the show later, here's the story. No, uh, no, no! Don't say too much. <laughs> here's the story. You need I participated to in check a totally out illegal psilocybin trial in London, and I had a totally very powerful legal. legal psychedelic experience. Right. It's true. <laughs> Disclaimer: Check out her work. It's incredible. But. Do we have any questions that are in the room? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this like prayer request style because we don't have an extra mic up here. And so if you'll ask a question, then I'm going to reframe it. Hopefully I'm not going to change it. Sometimes you know you have a weird prayer request and you're like, what you, God, will you do? You know, anyway. And then I will allow, so Sarah, you're going to get a question. I'm going to reframe it. And then if you'll answer it, is that all right? Yeah. Great. Yes. So the question was, Sarah shared this morning that she's someone who's really wanted to experience the personal God, if you will, and has not had that sort of quote unquote personal experience and keeps working towards it. So when you're in that space, you can communicate with people who have both had the very personal God moment and the people who have not had the personal God moment. Then he shared that he himself has had the personal God moment. I feel like I need a chart for you guys, but it was a long time ago. And so it makes it difficult to talk to people who have not because their answer would be, well, you've had that. And so it discounts where I am at. And so it's just sort of, how do you, if you are someone who has had this experience, but it's been a while, how do you sort of talk about that in mm -hmm. a way that is allowing space for those who are saying, it hasn't happened for me? Mm -hmm. Because I, I think that was a really important thing, and this wasn't part of your question, that I felt like the room felt this as well. It's like, we don't talk about what if you're really trying to know God and, and God just never shows up. We don't know what to do with those folk. And we are those folk. Like, we don't know. What to, right? Well, right. Especially because if God is personal in any way that is meaningful to us, 
then God is almost certainly loving in a way that is meaningful to us. And when we start thinking through the examples of love that we have available to us, so like parenting is a great example. If you are a parent to a child, it is your job to make them feel loved by you. Like they don't, they shouldn't have to work at it. They shouldn't have to beg for it. It's not their job, your job. It's your job to make them feel loved. Exactly. It is your job. It is your job. And I remember even as a child feeling like, my God, is it normal for me to have to be like begging to understand God's presence and love in this way? Because it feels like if God is God, it is like, has any sort of like agency or power at all is truly loving, then that should mean something for me. Right. So I will say I did have experiences when I was quite young. I have had experiences of a personal God like in when I was really young, like before age 13, for sure. I think what has happened for me is that I now have, I don't, want, I don't mean this in like a reductive dismissive way, but I now have explanations for those experiences. So I now have scientific stories, narratives about why I was experiencing those things in the way that I was, why I was experiencing those things in relationship to what I conceived to be a personal God that for obvious reasons, for probably most of us in, the, in this room, was like an older father figure God. I now have like, under, I, I now understand like why I would have formed God concepts that were emotionally tinged in the way that mine were. And I've had to do the hard, I've certainly had to do a lot of hard intellectual and like emotional work around letting go of certain versions of God. The problem for me, and I think this is also part of what you're getting at, is that like, well, okay, so the, one of the problems for me is that like the version of God you get when you've stripped away all of the, psychologically specific accoutrements of your childhood version of God is not as awesome as we want God to be. That's, God is an that's awesome right. God hearing. Is no one else? Okay. Um, but when I'm... <laughs> trauma We can do the whole thing right now. <laughs> but when I'm talking to people, I mean, when I... So as soon as I move from, like, the realm of my own head into, like, conversation with others, I instantly transition into, like, where are they? Like, what is their... Um, what are their priors? That's what we say in academia. Like, what are their priors? Like, what are they bringing to the table? What are their philosophical resources that they have available to them? What are their theological commitments? And we talk about what's real to them. We talk about what they're wanting to probe on and push on. A lot of people, are not, it's not going to be helpful for them if we have a story where I'm like deconstructing their experiences of a personal God. But other people might actually be very open to a Tom Ward God, might actually be very open to a different version of a God that allows them to still say something about ultimate reality, but gets away from some of the more problematic parts or the less helpful aspects of God. I mean, I think what I'm saying here is basically what we're talking about before that mostly I just want to like connect to people and make them feel like seen and heard and okay. And I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not an expert. Like, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea like what is possible for these people with God. But I think there are better and worse theologies. And so a lot of my best conversations come from that. Once people feel accepted, then you can move to theology. Yeah, I just, it's the idea of being able to say, I had this experience. It's been a long time and I don't know how to frame it anymore. And I'll be honest, sometimes I feel even isolated from the me that I used to be. Mm-hmm. Because okay. everyone can relate to that. Everyone can relate to having like, gosh, like, man, tiny baby Sarah, just super loved boyfriend Jesus. And I kind of sometimes wish the boyfriend Jesus was real. And it's okay to have grace. Because what you're doing in that space is allowing grace for that person that's standing in front of you to say, I haven't had that experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing is uh, because a lot of us grew up in places and spaces where we had to have answers, mm-hmm. you are a tall male presenting person. You've often been told you have to be an expert. You don't need to be an expert in this. You can just be a fellow journeyer. And even Sarah has a doctor in front of her name. And so everyone's going to be like, you're the expert. And so the minute Sarah says, yeah, but like, what if? Mm-hmm. It allows space to just continue to grow. And I think that's the beauty and the, and the giftedness of fellow humanity. It's the problem sometimes with pastoral ministries. We're like, we should be the expert. And then we get up there and we're like, I have some thoughts. <laughs> maybe. Like, I feel like every sermon should have just been ended with, like, maybe. Like, it's all these ideas. Maybe. Um, and I think that's the same with academia, because yeah. if we're honest about science, I remember the first time I went into my dad's, my dad is a doctor, biologist. He has three postdoctor. I don't even want to talk about it. And he had all these, he had these chemistry books, and I remember discovering that my professor wanted to have his chemistry book because the chemistry book my dad had all that chemistry was now wrong because of one thing that he discovered, but he was being taught it as fact. 
That's so good. So we have to remember that whether it's science or it's theology or even music, they're discovering all kinds of weird things about like new musical theories. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me to explain this. But I think it's this beautiful idea of like, what if the point isn't to be right or to have the facts or the right answers? And this is not Rick Warren's favorite. We're supposed to have one purpose-driven thing. We're supposed to be able to figure it out and Daniel plan our way out of it. And the truth is, is like... I don't know why I'm picking on Rick Warren. If you're listening to this, there's space for you. The most shout outs he's ever gotten on your podcast. He lives in my neighborhood, so I feel like I'm honest. We should be friends. I see him all the time. Another Hawaiian shirt. Good job, sir. Um, I don't know why I'm picking on it. You're great. There's space for you as well. I think there's this sense of like, everyone just needs to hear, you, you belong here. What if? And it's okay. And that's the, those of us have been taught as pastors, we're supposed to be experts. As academics, we're supposed to be experts. Uh, Whatever you're, as a parent, you're supposed to, my favorite, my friend was parenting her child the other day, and she was like, you can't, she wanted to watch this movie, and she was like, I don't, I want to watch this movie. And she said, you can't watch that movie till 12. And my friend's daughter is a very empowered woman. And she turns around, she goes, why? And she goes, I don't know, man, I've never parented before. I've heard other people (laughs) say it. So I'm just like, going with it. You're literally the first child I ever had. I am literally just trying. <laughs> I was like... I love that. Love it. But it's scary and it's vulnerable. And then she said, but I love you and I'm trying my best. I just want to keep you safe and this is the best I know to do. So no, you cannot watch Halloween until you're 12. Forever. Um, God. It still scares me. Yeah. Sarah, you are brilliant and gracious and kind and I'm so thankful that you are here to share your story. Folks, I am going to say something that maybe is not I'm sure connecting with you would be a great thing and okay and if you have more questions for her, unfortunately we are running out of time and by that I mean we're done with our time. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being so open, for being such a great audience. We appreciate you as Sarah's. uh, That's our job. So thank you so much guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're enjoying the conversations you hear on recovery, you can continue the conversation with us and many more incredible people in what's known as the recovery room on discord to access our discord. Please join our Patreon to be a part of this community. You can join for as little as $4 a month, and that gives you access to the community resources as well as it helps us to be able to produce the show. Check it out on patreon.com slash Now we know that not everyone is able to financially support the show, but there are so many ways you can support us, including giving us a five-star review wherever you are currently listening and make sure to like and subscribe across all social media. Rev Covery Room is on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and that's our handle. So come find us and let's keep the conversation going. On to some final thoughts and this week's poem. Thanks everyone for hanging in for the poem at the end. This has become one of my favorite parts of the show, honestly. Uh, Something that Sarah and I just joked around with one day, and we decided we were going to end with a poem and a quote. And it's something that I continue to get something out of every time when I think back on the episodes that we've done and the way we've tried to tie them up. And this one, something that kept sticking out to me is is expanding or changing your posture to the divine when things aren't necessarily working. Um, That's something that I've had to do many times. That's something I think many of us have had to do. And I wanted to leave with a quote. Really, it's going to be more of an excerpt. It might be a bit of a long one, folks, uh, from Carl Sagan. And this is from The Pale Blue Dot. If you don't know what the pale blue dot is, it's an image, actually, of Earth uh, taken from... I think the Voyager probe and it's an image of earth and it looks just like a very tiny pale blue dot and this image to consider it to look at it uh, changes your perspective on your place in the universe and your place in things and the place that God has in those things and my understanding of God has expanded and contracted and shifted and interacting with the work of Carl Sagan and the, the field of astronomy. And so I want to kind of just let us sit in that place for a second. So I'm going to read a bit about Carl Sagan's reflections on that image and then try to tie it up at the end here. Look again at that dot. 
That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives on that dot. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Sometimes there's an image or an experience or a life-altering revelation that changes and cracks open uh, what we think about the divine. And my hope for you, it is that it is a humbling and character-building experience. And whether God is alive and well for you, whether God is completely hidden and maybe even non-existent, may that journey help us to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish this place we call home. Have a wonderful holiday. We'll see you next week. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.